If your feelings are still what they were last April, tell me so at once. My affections and wishes have not changed, but one word from you will silence me forever. If, however, your feelings have changed, I will have to tell you. You have bewitched me, body and soul, and I love, I love, I love you. I never wish to be parted for you, from you for this day. <laughs> oh my gosh, that was amazing. <laughs> um... <laughs> Do you feel the passion? You did that. You did that so perfectly. You sounded just like him. Okay. Well, thank you. Um, <laughs> what a superbly featured room, and what excellent boiled potatoes. <laughs> that was great. I tried. <laughs> okay. I could feel the Mister Collins sleeping <laughs> through. I've always wanted to do that. <laughs> Welcome to Your Pick, a film podcast. I'm Geneva. And I'm Tatum. We're two friends who love movies and love sharing them with each other. Each week, we take turns picking a film that is close to our hearts and talk about why it moves us, to tears, to laughter, and everything in between. We celebrate the craft of filmmaking, as well as the unique and personal ways we find meaning in the movies we watch. Speaking of the movies we've been watching, um, Tatum, do you want to go first? Tell us what you've been watching this week. Sure. Yeah. So I actually, I'm, I've been taking a little bit of a break from movies and I've been catching up on some TV shows that I've been wanting to watch for a while. Um, and so one show that I, I don't remember exactly when first, when the first season came out, but it was definitely a few years ago. Um, but I never went back and watched the second season and then it took a break for a while and they recently announced that they're making a third season and it reminded me of the show and I was like, oh, I should go back and, and get back into that. It's an HBO original comedy called Los Espookies. Um, oh, I've heard <laughs> and, that, the, that name, but I don't really know anything about it. Yeah. So it's, it's a comedy that I think was like originally created by Fred Armisen and a few other people. Um, but <laughs> I mean, by the time the second season comes around, I don't really feel like I can even say what the show is about, but the reason why it's called Los Spookies is because the four, is it four or is it three? Yeah. So the four main characters, they're all a part of this group where they have realized that they all love certain aspects of horror and they can make money by like creating certain horror circumstances for people where like they need it so for example <laughs> but they're all like ridiculous scenarios or something like that no it's like for example there's one episode where there's this teacher who she's like my students they all love these monsters and blah 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 but they never pay attention in class so can you guys come in and create this whole scenario of like putting a monster in the classroom that makes kids really excited about school and so one of the guys like dresses up in this costume that's completely ridiculous and does not look like a real monster at all. And I think his name is like BBs or something. And he's like, BBs love school. BBs loves listening to the teacher. And like his fellow Los Spookies people are like outside of the room feeding lines into like headphones he has in his ears because one of them's like reading a script um, that they pre-wrote. And then another one is like, there's this guy who he is the the one in charge of like deciding 
who in a cemetery, like where the bodies actually are buried in the cemetery. And a scandal comes out that like he actually has buried all of the bodies in the wrong places and the families have found out about it and they're really upset. And so he calls in Los Spookies and he's like, I need people to just like convince these families that I act that like the ghosts that like the bodies wanted me to put them in the wrong graves. And that's why I did it. So they have this whole setup where they um, they like all, the families come over to the cemetery late at night and they like dress up in these suits and like float over the graves from these strings. They're like, oh, we chose to be in this other grave and we wanted to. What? So, um, so, yeah, it's a really funny show. And it's also a great way for me to practice my Spanish because it's like entirely in Spanish. Um, which I think is cool that HBO did that. Um, and it's cool cause I listened to the first season, like, like I said, years ago and it was a little bit more difficult for me to understand the Spanish, but now after living in Spain, it's like, ah, this is easy as like, I totally understand everything that they're saying. So, um, that's, awesome. so that's cool. Yeah. Um, and then there's another show that came out in 2022 that I've been interested in, but just didn't watch it because I was wrapped up in watching other things, but it's an FX on Hulu show called The Patient and it's starring oh, Domhnall Gleeson and Steve Carell. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's it actually, it? it's, it's way better than I thought it was going to be. Cause I was kind of like, how many times have we seen the scenario of someone being locked in a basement and like they're the person who's kind of holding them prisoner <laughs> is coming in and has not done happened to <laughs> Right. Um, but it's like, I've, I've kind of seen that story many times and I was like, does this really have anything new to bring to the table? Let's be honest. I'm just going to try it because it has Steve Carell in it. And I love Steve Carell long live the office and Michael Scott. He will forever be in our hearts. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> same so, for me, except Donald Gleason. So <laughs> exactly. Um, so yeah, I watched it and it was surprisingly like really good. I enjoyed it. Um, it definitely, I think it, it brought something new to the table um, in ways that I won't talk about because spoilers. Um, but I would I would say I would recommend it. I think it's good. Um, good. I think it's good. Um, <laughs> I think that I think it's it's worth watching. Um, the performances are really strong, particularly Steve Carell's. I think this might be his best non-comedic performance, actually, in my opinion. Um, I, the first episode I think is kind of funny cause he does like scream and yell and whenever he screams and yells in anything, he just sounds like Michael Scott to me. But, um, after that he does really get into his role and, and I think his performance is very, um, just very impressive. And I like seeing that side of him and the whole show, I was kind of watching it and I, and I kept wondering, I have no idea how this is going to end because there's no way that this could be the end. There's no way that this could be the end. There's no way that that could be the end. How is this going to end? And so up until the last episode, I literally had like no idea what the ending was going to be because I was like, it couldn't be this and it couldn't be that, but but they won't do this and they won't do that. Um, But yeah, and it also does a really good job of just like tying in family relationships and stuff like that. So Anyway, yeah, those are kind of the, um, oh yeah, and if people want to know the premise of The Patient, I've noticed that I have kind of say what I'm watching, we don't really talk about what it actually is about. Oh. So The Patient, <laughs> yeah. so the patient is about, Steve Carell is a therapist, and Domino Gleason is his patient, and Domino Gleason ends up taking him to his house and locking him in his basement, because he's like, the only way that I can actually tell you about 
the reason why I'm in therapy is if you are chained up in my basement and like can't report me to anyone or whatever. So, um, which I think is an interesting question. Um, and so, yeah, the whole thing kind of ensues of is Steve, can Steve Carell actually help him and how much is he actually wanting to help him versus just doing it to play an act because he's terrified because he's locked in this guy's basement. Right. Um, and like they build a relationship with each other, but how much is that actually real or healthy or whatever? Um, I'm going to say none of it's healthy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And like, ultimately, how is this going to end? Because if Steve Carell like heals, quote unquote, like heals him or so regardless of whether he heals him or doesn't heal him, how can this end? Like, is he going to be set free or is he going to be kept there? Is he going to be killed? Like how, you know, how is it going to end? So, um, yeah, I would say it's quite good. It's a, it's a fun, engaging thriller. Um, and I would recommend it. So yeah, that's okay. the patient and, uh, Los Spookies. <laughs> All right. Good to know. Yeah. I was thinking of checking that one out. I just, didn't hear many people talking about it, so I wasn't sure whether it was worth the time or not, but maybe I'll check it out. Yeah, I, watched... I think it just got swallowed up because so many things came out yeah, last year. Yeah, that... there's always just... Yeah. There's, there's too much to do. There's too much. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm getting to it months later, so yeah. What have you been watching, Geneva? Yeah, so I watched uh, three really good movies recently that I wanted to mention. Um, I'm going to try not to... Spend too much time rambling on about each one, but I feel like I could, def- I could definitely talk about each one for a while. Um, well, maybe so- we can do a podcast episode about them at some point. I mean, yeah, I would be down. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the first one is called Sideways. It's a kind of indie comedy that came out in the early 2000s, starring Paul Giamatti and Thomas Hayden Church. Um, Sandra O oh is in it. Um, and basically the idea is it's these two middle-aged men. One of them is about to get married. Thomas Hayden Church char- Church's character is about to get married. And Paul Giamatti is his kind of um, sort of like depressed loser friend who takes him up to wine country um, to further his like bachelorette week um, sort of celebration kind of thing. Paul Giamatti's character is a huge wine connoisseur. Like that's his 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 main source of passion in life. Um, and so he's dragging Thomas Hayden Church around to all these wineries and talking about how you appreciate wine. And all Thomas Hayden Church wants to do is to sleep with some woman before he gets married and various shenanigans ensue. Um, and yeah, it's just like a kind of small comedy that I would really recommend. I thought um, the acting is is great from all of the characters. I mean, when is Paul Giamatti bad? He's really, he's one of my favorite character actors. And it's really great to see him in this lead role um, and a role that has him, him do so much because he's, you know, he's sympathetic, but he's also a frustrating character in certain ways. And, um, you know, there are are all these things he needs to kind of confront in order to grow and and heal from the sort of disappointments that he's had in his life. and the friendship between the two of them is really interesting because they're kind of long-standing friends, but they're two extremely different people. And so they support each other in certain ways, but then they also really get on each other's nerves in certain ways. Um, it's really fun to watch. So yeah, I would definitely recommend that. Um, second, I watched this movie from 1962, I believe, um, a horror film called Carnival of Souls. And this was a 
um, I think it might have been an independent film at the time. It's kind of a smaller film. I only heard about it through this um, film class that I took for my master's degree. But it's a really, really wonderful um, kind of small, quiet horror film about this woman who survives a traumatic car accident. And then almost immediately she drives, she leaves to go take a job in a new um, town. And so she's a single woman. She's living in, in this room, in this house, and she's starting this job as a church organist. But she starts seeing this mysterious kind of pasty man um, who shows up in random places and is watching her. And she's really unsettled yeah, by I'm, it. I'm looking up pictures of him right now. He looks horrifying. <laughs> yes. <laughs> kind of, you know, early zombie type makeup. Um you know, just very pasty, you know, dark Looks eyes. Looks like the joke, like the Joker, Heath, Le- Heath Ledger's Joker, kind of. Yeah, In terms of like the of. makeup. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But um, she's this very sort of practical woman, this very pragmatic woman who is very used to being independent and being alone in life, which I can <laughs> relate to in certain ways. And so... You know, she's very isolated because she just moved to this new town and she doesn't really know anyone. She doesn't know who she can trust. And so just throughout the movie, she's kind of, you know, you're constantly having this wonder of, is this actually happening? Is her sanity being worn down? Uh, Who can she go to to help, for help? Um, What is happening? That sort of thing. And yeah, it's it's a really, really good movie. It's... um, very well done. It looks beautiful. It's well acted. Um, <clears throat> yeah, uh, Carnival of Souls. I would recommend. Yeah, um, I've, I've never, I've never heard of that. It looks and sounds really interesting. So I'll have to add that to my list. Yeah, it's on HBO Max right now. That's where I watched it. Sick. Love HBO Max. Love HBO Max. Yes. Okay, and then the final movie I watched is oh my goodness, this movie I had been wanting to watch for a long time. Very excited that it was oh, finally out of Amazon Prime. I know which one this is. I know which one this is. <laughs> this is Night of the Hunter from 1955. So, so good. So, so freaking good. good. I had heard for a long time about how this movie, how good this movie was. Was not, still not prepared for how good it is. It's fascinating because this movie, this is, so this is a thriller. Um, again, from 1955, it stars Robert Mitchum. He plays this sort of, basically a, a, a psychopath, um, a sort of insane psychopath who poses as a preacher and he's Lean attempting to. The everlasting oh, I cannot hear that song anymore without chills. He becomes fixated on this family where the husband was a bank robber and stole $10,000 and hid it before he was caught and executed by the state. And so he becomes fixated on the, the widow and the two children um, who he. He's convinced that the children know where the $10,000 is. And so he comes to this town and he worms his way into the affections of the town um, while he's trying to wear down on the children and, and get them to tell him where the money is. And it's just, it's so, first of all, it looks beautiful. The cinematography mm-hmm. is absolutely insane. There's this one shot, I won't spoil the context of this, but there's a shot underwater um mm-hmm. of something <laughs> under the water and it just looks so beautiful and so haunting and the way the editing works where there's a um 
folk songs and nursery rhymes and things like that are used very often throughout the film as kind of the the sound, the auditory auditory backdrop, and the way that it it'll show shots of nature while these songs are playing or, or cut to people doing things while these songs are playing in the background. It feels very modern in a way. Um, this is a, really a film that's ahead of its time, and it. The, the just the thematic elements of it of the way that he's able to use his religion his um you know his faux religion to manipulate the people around him and um you know get his way basically and and try to uh control what people do or how people think of him is so good the way female sexuality is talked about and how that is used to control women and um to keep them in line um, the vulnerability of children and childhood trauma is really explored in this movie. It's so good. It's so ahead of its time. This is also, this is the first and only film directed by Charles Lawton, who is a wonderful actor from the, the 40s and 50s. And this movie at the time was a, it was considered a failure. It was a flop at the box office. It was not very well received. And he never directed another film. And that's just such a tragedy because this film is become really one of the greatest films ever made and i remember i i read mm -hmm. i read a review on letterboxd that someone wrote and it was like can you imagine only making one movie and that one movie was the best movie of all time oh my goodness it's so true it's yeah it's crazy it's insane yeah i i, I think i'm not sure exactly what when um the reevaluation came i hope it came before his death in 1962, but I'm I'm not sure if it did. But yeah, yeah Charles Lawton, wherever you are, you made a great film. <laughs> you feel very proud, yeah. and I wish you could have made more. I will say, Geneva, I think that movie is on my list to discuss at some point. So oh, it will good. be it will be coming back <clears throat> at some point in the duration of this podcast. So who knows when that will be? But we okay. will hopefully talk about that at some point because I oh, absolutely love that I'm film. Excited. Very powerful. Oh. Yeah, incredible. I'm glad you watched it finally. It's, yeah. Yeah, it's me great. too. Me too. It's on Amazon Prime right now. So, get oh, interesting. Interested. I think when I watched it, it was on HBO Max, but that was a while ago. So, yeah. Yeah. All right. So, that was what I had for this week. Um, That's, we had some today. good ones. We did. We really did. Yeah. I generally try not to, I feel like I ramble on too long when I get excited about the movies I watch. So I generally try not to talk about more than one, but I was like, there are three I really loved. I feel like I need to, <laughs> yeah. like I need to watch them all. Yeah. I mean, I, I cut out a few as well. I, I decided to cut out that I watched Return of the King because I can't even get started on Yeah. Well, we're, <laughs> we're definitely going to episode that one eventually. So yeah. And then there was another thing I watched that I was like, yeah, I didn't really like it that much. So I was like, I'll just focus on the ones I did like. So, yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, as for today's film, today on the show, we are discussing Pride and Prejudice, the 2005 film adaptation of Jane Austen's classic novel. It is directed by Joe Wright and starring Keira Knightley and Matthew McFadden. Jane Austen published six novels between 1811 and 1818. She died in 1817. She was only 41 years old. Austin's stories center on the experiences of young women as they navigate relationships, family obligations, and the strict social roles of middle to upper class society in Regency era England. Her books are frequently witty and romantic, but they're also social satires, and Austin's work is rightly revered today for its moral and psychological complexity. 
Pride and Prejudice, first published in 1813, tells the story of Elizabeth Bennet, a charming and witty young woman, and her love story with the proud but reserved Mr. Darcy. Both Lizzie Bennet and Mr. Darcy undergo growth as, as the events of the novel force Lizzie to reevaluate her initial negative impression of him, while Mr. Darcy must let go of some of his pride in order to gain the woman he loves. Now, I did a little bit of research into the history of um, <clears throat> Jane Austen adaptation on film. A lot of this I knew already. I am, as we'll probably see, I'm a very big <laughs> Jane Austen fan. She, it was, she's um, very versed in everything Jane Austen. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm just, I'm a basic bitch like that. Um, mm, yes, but that's why my, I love you. Uh, thank you. Um, <laughs> my senior, uh, senior thesis in undergraduate undergrad was actually on Jane Austen book to film adaptation. I was focusing specifically on... Oh my gosh, I don't on... think I knew that. Yeah, have we not talked That's about this? That's very fitting for you. No, it I don't is. think we did. <laughs> very on brand. Yeah, I was focusing specifically on adaptations where the the books are, are brought into the modern day. So Clueless mm -hmm. would be one example of something that I talked about. But um, yeah, so I was looking a little bit into Pride and Prejudice specifically and how many times it's been put on screen. Um, strange as it might seem today, when Jane Austen adaptations are basically a genre unto themselves, they actually were relatively sparse prior to the 1990s. So in 1914, MGM released an adaptation of Pride and Prejudice. 1940. 1940, yes. What did I say? You said 1914. Oh, no. I just wanted to make sure. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> uh, yes, 1940, MGM released Pride and Prejudice, uh, starring Greer Garson and Laurence Olivier. The film pushed the story's setting forward from the Regency era into the 1830s. Um, so this is an era of gigantic, huge, like, puffed sleeves and giant bonnets that are like three feet high. <laughs> Uh, it altered key elements of the plot. Um, I assume for the sake of time, although maybe they wanted to make a little bit more of a screwball comedy in the kind of, you know, 1930s, 1940s mold. Not quite sure why they decided to do that. The movie was critically well reviewed at the time, but it failed at the box office. So over the next 50 years, there weren't a whole lot of Jane Austen adaptations at all. Um, Pride and Prejudice was adapted several times for television. Um, there were versions actually in Spanish, Italian, and Dutch. Uh, but it was not until 1995 that on-screen adaptations of Austen's works began to explode. There were, sorry, I should specify, in the 70s and 80s, there were television adaptations of, I think, most if not all of her works. Um, but those were kind of they're a little bit stagey. Um, they're, they weren't super popular. I mean, Maybe they were popular at the time, I don't know. But they're not as well remembered as the 1995, um, the things that began to come out in 1995. So 95 had four major adaptations that came out in that one year alone. So there's a TV movie version of Persuasion. There was Ang Lee's Oscar-winning film, Sense and Sensibility. Uh, there's Clueless, which is an adaptation of Emma that's set in a Beverly Hills high school. And then, of course... Pride and Prejudice, a six-part BBC miniseries that became an absolute cultural phenomenon and made Colin Firth a household name. Altogether, I love how you say, "I love how you say, of course, Pride and Prejudice," and like it became a cultural phenomenon. And I'm like, 
You say that as if this is common knowledge. I really didn't know that that even existed until like two years ago. <laughs> See, this is why I love our friendship because the things that are common knowledge like, in your course, world and the and things that are common knowledge in my world. Yeah. <laughs> we just, <laughs> yes. If you are a nerdy English lit major, um, who's obsessed with all things England, Pride and Prejudice is 1995 is kind of the OG. But um, right. I accept those are more niche circles. But anyway, <laughs> <laughs> um, the success of that miniseries helped to revive interest in Austin's work overall and also kicked off a series of major Hollywood releases, which included Emma in 1996, Mansfield Park in 1999, which is not a version I particularly like, but we can talk about that another day. And in 2005, Joe writes Pride and Prejudice. All right, so why don't we talk about um, our feelings about this movie and kind of if we have any history with it. So I'll start. Um, I saw this movie when it came out in 19, uh, 2005, went to the theater with it to see it. Um, I'm originally from the, the Philadelphia suburbs, and there's a great sort of indie art house movie theater called the Bryn Mawr Film Institute. And they will get... They'll get more, yeah, indie movies, smaller movies, and they do a lot of period dramas. So I remember that's that's where it was showing. I went with my mom and a group of group of other ladies who were my mom's friends, and we all went out to see Pride and Prejudice together. Um, I loved it. So Absolutely. this is what this is like like twelve year old Geneva, basically like yeah. going to see this movie <laughs> with your mom and all her all her lady friends. Yep, yep, thirteen year old Geneva. Love um, it. I was such a cool 13-year-old. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I loved it. I'm pretty sure I had read the book at that by that point. Um, yeah, I, I really loved it. I've, I've seen it many times over the years since then. It was my introduction to Matthew McFadden, not not to Keir Knightley because I'd seen Pride and Prejudice, but or uh, Pride and Prejudice, I'd seen Pirates of the Caribbean, but uh, Matthew McFadden, yeah, that was the first thing that I'd seen him in. Um, thought he was wonderful and yeah I've it's just one of those movies it's such a it's such a comfort movie and I've I've seen it so many times it is it's so romantic um it's so well made and I just think it's a basically a perfect movie to me as I was re-watching it I was like this movie is perfect there are things that I could talk about and we will talk about as um regarding the adaptation choices that were made because I don't think this is a perfect adaptation but I think it's a perfect movie. So Tatum, what about you? What's your history with this movie? If any. <laughs> if any. Yeah, so I, I've i also seen this movie um, a handful of times. I feel like I've probably seen this movie more than 10 times. I've seen it a bunch. Um, I don't, believe it or not, I have no recollection of my first time watching this movie. I know that I watched it like, I know I watched it the year that it came out, but I definitely did not see it in theaters. But I don't remember. I might have seen it for the first time at my grandma's house in her basement with my cousins. But I, I don't I, I don't really know. Um, I remember liking it when I was younger. I thought it was I thought it was really funny. 
Um, I didn't, I didn't really connect with the romantic side of things because I think I was like 10 or 11 (laughs) years old. Um, I remember thinking that Mr. Darcy looked super old, which I guess to like a 10 year old he is. (laughs) So I was like, I don't get why he's cute. He's like a million years old. (laughs) Did you Um, also think that Lizzie Bennett was a million years old? Like, did you think it was appropriate? No. Or are you just like, no, well, no, I did not think old man. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, literally yes because I knew her from Pirates of the Caribbean and I knew and I was obsessed with Orlando Bloom so I was like her and Orlando Bloom are supposed to be together and Orlando Bloom is young who's this old guy <laughs> um, that's hilarious now I'm, I'm looking up the age difference between them as you talk Keep going. it's probably not that much it's I feel probably like. not that much <laughs> um, I think it was like the sideburns and I don't know but yeah, um, yeah. the old fashioned um uh, hair hairdos yeah um but anyway so yeah I didn't really connect with like the romantic side of things when I first watched it which I think is like one of the primary storylines of this movie um but I really just enjoyed it as a comedy um I, because I realized re-watching it yesterday I kept writing down this movie is actually really funny I wrote down several quotes and I couldn't even write down all of them that genuinely made me laugh because they're just they're just really funny um so yeah I do really like this movie I think that Geneva is right in that I mean not that there's a right or wrong answer but I think for me it definitely is kind of just a comfort movie where if I'm kind of if I'm in a bad mood or just want to watch something that's familiar and kind of makes you feel happy and good inside this is definitely a movie that I would put on in those type of circumstances um I do think it similar to what Geneva said, I do think it's incredibly well made. Um, I think the casting in particular is perfect. I think every single actor that is put in every single role in this movie is the perfect choice. Um, I think the costume design is great. I think the production design, the location, whoever the locations manager is, like, I don't think there's an Oscar for locations management or in location scouting, but the location manager of this movie deserves an Oscar because the sets and the locations, well, sets and locations are different things, but the locations that they choose are incredible. Um, so yeah, well, I think it's very well research, made. I, I read that it was, it was shot entirely on location. So it was all, it was completely oh. shot in England. And at least from what I could tell, they didn't build any sets. It was all, you know, houses that they found or fields and, you know, that beautiful, okay. uh, I think it's called a folly, that like stone structure where they have the um, the first proposal takes place. You know, it's all mm-hmm. things that they, they found in various parts of England. Yeah. So shout out to the locations manager because <laughs> it's really impressive. Um, but yeah, I agree with Geneva. The movie's really well made. I think um, I do. I do really enjoy watching it, and I'm excited to talk about it because there's definitely a lot to talk about here. Not just the story, but also, you know, like I said, and like we both said, the locations, the production design, the costumes, the all of the things. There's a lot to talk about here. So, yeah, I'm excited to get into it. Yeah, agreed. Just out of curiosity, um, do you have you read? the book or have you seen any other versions of the the pride and prejudice story that you have to kind of compare to this one um the answer to the first question is i saw this movie and then i tried to read it but again i think i was like 11 years old which yeah so i read like the i don't even know how much of it i read i remember i got to the point where mr bingley 
and his sister and like all of them are kind of sitting in the room talking while Jane is sick. Mm -hmm. And I was like, yeah, I can't keep reading this. <laughs> so I've read part of it. Um, I've never gone back to it. And I don't remember really anything that I read because I was really little. Okay. As far as other adaptations, I don't I don't know. I don't think so. Um, but maybe. But my knee-jerk reaction is no. This is the okay. only version I've seen. But I could be wrong. Yeah, just curious. And there, because there's been a couple of those sort of modernized adaptations i mean there's there's the lizzie bennett diaries which is a wonderful youtube series from about nope 10 years ago or so there is uh bridget jones diaries kind of very loose retelling of pride and prejudice um, oh i have seen that movie i just didn't connect it with pride and prejudice yeah it's it's very loose um there's yeah. bride and prejudice which is a half bollywood half english movie that is i think really good um i would recommend isn't and that, that is like a zombie a... Pride and Prejudice movie? <laughs> no, you're thinking of Pride and Prejudice and Zombies, which is another. <laughs> oh, okay. I was going to say, I feel like there is a zombie one. Yeah, there is a zombie one. Um, weirdly, I was not as um, excited about that <laughs> one. But... <laughs> weirdly. Yeah, but I definitely have not seen this so, like, apparently cultural phenomenon six-part BBC series. <laughs> I have not seen that ever, so, <laughs> yeah. Well, I have a... We both have a mutual friend who I think would uh, love nothing more than to sit down with you and and watch it through. Who is it? No, loves that version. And she remember she um oh I didn't she know had it. never seen the two thousand five version, and she was like, I can't because Colin Firth is the only Mister Darcy for me. Oh, and so I finally sat her down and watched, and she watched it, and she was like, This is fine, but it's not the two thousand the nineteen ninety five version. Interesting. You know? Yeah. Okay, yeah, I was just curious because as I was watching it, that was something that was um, kind of on my mind is just to start off, I think this is a really interesting as a work of adaptation because it's a movie that, you know, it retains the plot, it retains all of the characters, and in some ways it retains the the spirit of the movie, but I, there are really specific interesting decisions that it makes with adaptation that actually change quite a bit what the the move what the book is doing but in a way that I don't mind um and I'm not I'm not always a purist when it comes to book to film adaptations I'm definitely less so than I used <laughs> than I used to be as a child I was very much like you must adapt everything you, perfectly or or because you realized how failure. infrequently that actually happens <laughs> well interestingly it was writing this thesis that made me um this undergraduate thesis that made me think a lot more deeply about it and to me i think the the important thing is that the movie as a whole works and that it's consistent and coherent and it's telling a story um well and as long as the the director has a very strong idea of what story they're telling if it ends up being different than the book, I don't always necessarily mind. Now, granted, that is a very, I can be very biased about it because I'm, as I mentioned before, there's a 1999 version of Mansfield Park that changes a lot of the story. And I love Mansfield Park. That's probably my favorite Jane Austen novel. And I feel very protective of it. <laughs> and so even though I think that movie is probably very well made, I've never revisited because I was very upset by the, the adaptation changes that they made. I literally have never heard of Mansfield Park in my life. 
<laughs> I've not raved to you about Mansfield Park and how no. I I don't think so. No. <laughs> I'm not giving you all There's, my hot takes on I really I really don't know anything about Jane Austen. I feel like every time a Jane Austen movie comes out, I can tell by the trailer that it's Jane Austen. But then I'm like, oh, never heard of that story. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, well, she only I'm like, oh, wow, problems. she's really, she's really uh, made a lot of movies that people or stories that people seem to really care about because this is like, yeah, anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Well, only, only six novels, but you know, they've all been adapted many times at this point. Well, not all of them, but most, the four most popular ones have been adapted many times at this point. Yeah. Um, where was I going with this? Um, no, <laughs> oh, oh, just rewatching this movie. So I was I was rereading um, sections from Pride and Prejudice yesterday in preparation for this, and one thing that I find really interesting about this adaptation is that the movie or the book, sorry, the book is much more the. How do I phrase this? The movie removes some of the social satire that is really central to the book. So the book is very much, you know, it is a love story. It is a character study, but it is also a social satire. And it's also, it's, it's very interested in kind of examining these characters and making specific moral critiques about the way that they act and the way that they live out their social roles. So for an example, Mr. Collins is, you know, he's a ridiculous character <laughs> in the book. And the the book goes into, you know, here is his history about how he was brought up and, you know, where he was educated. And, you know, he has this interesting mix of kind of humility because he comes from this very poor background, but then he was educated in this really expensive school. And, you know, he immediately got this uh, wealthy uh, patroness who was willing to give him this really good living so that he could have this nice life in this this town and that kind of inflated his ego beyond what his actual abilities are and so he has this kind of obsequiousness where he's like you know all you know faux humble but then at the same time he has this you know he's constantly going on about his know how nice his house is and how great his patroness is and things like that in a way that's it's ridiculous you know and it's 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 a character flaw it's a weakness in him and in the movie he is still um you know he is still ridiculous in certain ways but the movie is much more presenting him to me anyway as a character that's very deeply socially awkward and so he says things that are kind of funny and kind of ridiculous but it's because he doesn't really know any better because he doesn't really know how to relate to people you know his, the performance of tom hollander he's often not looking people in the eye and he's kind of he speaks as if he's reading off of this thing that he wrote in his head and he's just kind of reciting it in, and not really understanding how to react to people in the moment. And I think it's so interesting because that's such a different interpretation of Mr. Collins where one, we are, we can be critical of him. You know, we can be a little bit, I don't want to say judgmental, but you know, we are judging the fact that he is um, a character who did not respond to the situations in his life well, and therefore is, um, you know, judgmental of the people around him and, and is, um, you know, a, a person who has a lot of growth and maturi maturation that he should be going through, but he's not. 
versus in the movie where we can have a little bit more pity for him or a little more empathy for him. I don't know. Did you have that thought when you were watching? I'm not about the adaptational changes specifically, but do you read, do you have a similar read on Mr. Collins that I do in the movie? Yeah. I mean, I think, yeah, I think he just is an extremely socially awkward person who just doesn't, doesn't know how to communicate. And so he kind of just like, just leans on things. It seems like that he's just heard other people say, or other people say that this is supposed to be important. So I guess I'll just say this over and over and over again. So people see that I'm important, but I don't know how to do that. Um, so yeah, I think I honestly, I kind of, maybe this sounds mean, but I kind of pity him because he doesn't, I feel like he's socially awkward, but at the same time, he doesn't realize that he is, I I don't know. I, I mean, I feel like he maybe no. Yeah. I feel like he doesn't know that he's socially awkward. He's like, no, this is just how I speak. I don't know why other people are like laughing at me or whatever, because this is like, what's wrong? I don't know. So, um, yeah, I kind of pity him in, in that way, but, um, at the same time, it's, it's really funny. <laughs> it is. It is. Yeah. Well, and like, this is just sort of emblematic of the, what I think is interesting about this movie as a whole is that this, it does this for a lot of the characters. So in the book, the book is much more critical of Mr. and Mrs. Bennett because of the dysfunction in their marriage where Mrs. Bennett is this person who is just, you know, she's very selfish. She's very single-minded. She's very, um, you know, she's really only focused on one thing, which is getting her daughters married. Um, but you don't, I mean, you get a sense a little bit that it's for their benefit, but it's also largely for her own ego. You know, she's always wanting to take down anyone else who's in her path for the sake of getting her daughters married. And her husband, you know, Mr. Bennett, he's he's a much smarter, much wiser character. You know, he's a lot more similar to Lizzie, but he also has these character flaws in that he's very sort of indolent. He's very hands off. He's very just like, oh, my family, they're all they're all dumb. They're all ridiculous. I'm just going to, you know, Lizzie's fine. She's a little more tolerable than the others. Maybe I'll hang out with her. But otherwise, I'm just going to kind of, you know, go into my study and let Mrs. Bennett take over everything. And that really comes back to bite him when the whole Lydia incident comes down because, you know, he should have known that this was a bad idea. He should have put his foot down, but he didn't because he um, was lazy, basically, and he just he didn't want to deal with it. And so as a result, their marriage, there's a lot of dysfunction in this family. And the movie is much more open hearted toward these characters where it really does give you, it gives you a lot of sympathy toward Mrs. Bennett. You know, she is this middle-aged woman who has literally nothing better to do than to make sure her, her daughters are well married. And it gives her a line where she basically states that. And it's a great line. Um, and Mr. Bennett is also when you not have, really... When you have five daughters, Lizzie, tell me what will <laughs> occupy your thoughts. And she says that, and I'm kind of like, you know, I see where you're coming from, point. lady. Like, if mm -hmm. you're living in a society where that's the only thing that matters, and you have five daughters, I get it. I mean, yeah. not necessarily that I would behave the same way, but I can see how you got to where you're at now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And it portrays the family as being just very close and kind of, you know, they're close quarters, they're constantly together. And they get on each other's nerves sometime and they make mistakes, but 
there's a, a lot of love in that family in a way that I don't think is necessarily there in the book. Um, which again, this is not, it's not a critique of the movie. It's not a critique of the book. It's just an adaptation change. It's a different way of telling the story. And I find it really interesting. And I think it works really well in the movie for the story that Joe, Joe Wright is telling. It's just, it is a change. Yeah. I don't know. Any thoughts on, on this, on the, <laughs> the way that the characters are, are presented the sort of open heartedness that I, I find in this movie. Yeah. I mean, like I said, I have not read the book, so I can't, I can't draw any sort of comparisons, but, um, yeah, I mean, I do, I do definitely get a sense that, um, I don't know. I, I feel like the, the movie does a very good job of, like it it shows these people and it shows their flaws and it shows how they can be problematic. But at the same time, it it's not, in my opinion, it's not criticizing them. It is showing that like that there are good sides to them too. And ultimately like they do love each other and they do care about each other. And when they make mistakes, they do genuinely want to like help each other, except for maybe Lydia, who I think is a terrible person. And like, I don't straight up selfish, but she's also genuinely immature in a way, you know, she's never been, had to grow up. Um, so you get infuriated with her, but in the way of like a younger sibling who you're just like, just you're just an idiot. <laughs> you're just a child, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I think, I, yeah. So I feel like for me watching this movie, I definitely, I don't, I don't have any feelings of criticism towards any of the characters other than Lydia, because I feel like uh, I feel like all humans, we have our positive aspects and our negative aspects. And I feel like these, these characters, they are people who they're trying to grow and they're trying to learn. And at the end of the day, like as a family, I do feel like they're all genuinely supporting each other and wanting what's best for each other. And um, especially with, with the mom too, like, 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 like we both said, like, I think we, we learn that she's doing this because she cares about her daughter's future and she doesn't want them to be left completely destitute where Mr. Collins now owns the house and he's a weirdo. And I mean, obviously like she does take it to heights where it's, you know, you kind of just think lady, you, you got to calm down a little bit. You can't <laughs> like the, you're taking this to an extreme. It's going to be all right. But I think yeah, I don't know. I feel like for all the characters, at least for me, I do see where they're coming from. And I do like in particular how the, how the, how Mr. and Mrs. Bennett are portrayed in this movie, they are portrayed as complete opposites, in my opinion. Like they're totally different people and their marriage kind of shouldn't, shouldn't work in just the way that it seems. But at the same time, there are these really sweet moments between the two of them where it's kind of like, oh, I get it. I can see it. So there's that scene with the two of them towards the end where they're kind of laying in the bed together. And she's like, I knew she couldn't have been so beautiful for nothing. And they have this really sweet moment. And then another moment moment. that I, 
Yeah, and there's another moment that I, I've always loved in this movie. I've always thought that it's really, really funny, but it's at the first the first ball when <laughs> when Mrs. Bennett is like clearly very inebriated and <laughs> Mr. Bennett is like standing there fanning her and then like the one of the uh-huh. servers walks away with the drinks and he's like, Wait, <laughs> bring bring the drinks back and it's like so they don't only have these sweet gentle moments with each other but also they they kind of make each other laugh and you know and, and he's like oh on I have the highest respect for your nerves I've they've been my constant companion all these years and um such a good line that's yeah that's but I yeah I just yeah I just I love I genuinely l- love all of the relationships between the siblings here and you see how like Mary is kind of this socially awkward younger sister, but also they do see the value in her and they do want to like protect her. And I don't know. I, I feel like I see the love there and I feel that a lot more than any sort of criticism. I, I actually, that would maybe be a complaint of mine. I wish that Lydia was kind of, I wish that there was more critique of her. And I, I feel like there is kind of an attempt to maybe, argue that like oh well it's not her fault or like she's just young and she's innocent and I'm like no no she actually sucks like we need to (laughs) we need to criticize her a bit more because she's she just does whatever she wants even though she might destroy the entire family but even though she literally also knows that that Mm -hmm. like the guy that she's marrying is being paid to like she knows that but she doesn't doesn't like how can you not care I, yeah. That's just, I, I don't get it. Yeah. Well, I think part of the journey of Lizzie in this movie is her kind of being in this place where she recognizes her family's flaws and ridiculousness, but kind of laughs at them with affection toward her still having a similar relationship, but being a bit more critical and a bit more willing to be like, put her foot down and say, okay, this is not okay. You know, like she tries to tell that to Lydia um at the dinner table after after she got um comes back married she's like don't you realize why your aunt was yelling at you like don't you realize what you did and lydia just doesn't want to hear it so i don't know i was really um i feel like there's this sort of motif in the way that the the film is directed between the public life versus the private life i was really struck by that um, throughout the movie, the way that the filmmaking kind of distinguishes the in the life of the Bennets, you know, the fact that they are so often just all together, all in the same room, and there will be a a wide shot of them all at a you know at the dinner table or the breakfast table or in a um, in the living room or something like that, and they're all kind of talking over each other and they're all kind of jumbled, and then there will be scenes like. Lizzie and Jane in their bedroom when they're under the covers and they're sort of the covers creating this barrier between them and the outside world. And they're creating this private space where they can be together. And throughout the film, it's Lizzie's kind of moving toward creating that new private space with Mr. Darcy, you know, as they're, the more that they talk to each other, the more they're finding opportunities to be alone with each other, to have these sort of stolen glances that are, are, just for each other and, and, you know, um, unseen or inaccessible by the outside world. Like I, I found that 
I just I love the filmmaking in this movie. Like as I was rewatching it, I was just like, I can't believe. Well, this is not the first thing Joe Wright's ever directed. This is the first film that he's ever directed. This is his feature film debut. He was a television director before this. Uh, may have done some also, stage work as well. I think well. he's. I think he started in in theater. I remember. I think he did. There's yeah. There's a podcast called Team Deacons, and um, it's a Roger Deacons and James Deacons excellent podcast. podcast. If you don't know who Deacons, <laughs> first of all, you should learn who he is. He's uh, one of the best cinematographers ever. But they have um they have a podcast and they bring people on and uh, from the industry and um they brought Joe Wright on for an episode and I think because they ask everyone like how did you get to where you are in the industry and I think Joe Wright was in theater for a fairly long time and I think his parents were in, in theater yeah I think he may have stuff grown like that. up with families in the in I could be wrong the theater. I haven't listened to that episode in a while so <laughs> you know fact check me if you want but if I'm wrong yeah. that's don't don't come back at me but I think he started in theater yeah. it's a really great episode because I had never I had never heard Joe Wright's voice before um I had no idea what he sounded like. And he has this very working class English accent that you do not expect for someone who directed a movie this sort of romantic and ethereal and beautiful looking. Like, you know, you sort of expect him to sound like Mr. Darcy, you know, and instead he's just got this kind of very, um, you know, just like he sounds like a know your everyday footballer fan <laughs> i'm just like wow i did not expect that's what he would sound like and i think he well, got to start Geneva, doing much just more so you know kind of, yeah. i don't i don't think there are many people left in the world that talk like mr darcy so. <laughs> no it's fair i mean that's not an accent that is normally most people don't say you've bewitched me body and well, soul <laughs> <laughs> i mean accent wise but it's true <laughs> That is true. Not many people have Jane Austen writing your dialogue for you. <laughs> um, anyway, I'm sorry, I forgot where. So you <laughs> were, so you were talking about, you were talking about how well the movie is made, and so yes. I just wanted to like, mm -hmm. oh, sorry, do you want to finish that thought? Well, yeah, I well, I just wanted to talk about how good the direction is, and like some specific moments that really stood out to me. Um, again, I cannot believe that this is his his first feature film that he ever directed but it, it, at the same time it, it really does feel like someone who's like I need to make a splash and I'm just going to put it all out there because there's just so many things that he does I mean there's the you know there's the long shots that he does is particularly at the the Netherfield ball which I think a lot of people talk about because they're you know they're amazing long shots um where lizzie is wandering done, around the house and he's done see... a couple of those like he has the really famous long shot that he did in atonement as mm -hmm. well which yeah. is incredible one of my favorite long shots ever captured but he definitely does that a lot and every time he does it he's like because sometimes people make long shots and, and it's something where it's like i want this to just feel so natural that you don't even know that it's happening Whereas I feel like Joe Wright is like, no, I want you to know that this is happening and I want you to be impressed. And I want you to be like just amazed with the beauty of how this is all working. And yeah, I think he definitely I think he shows off when he does that, but in the best yeah. way. I love yeah. watching it. Yeah, it is a little bit of show off, but in, yeah, in the best possible way, because it's, it's very like a, you know, it's bringing the theater to um to film you know the that long shot at netherfield ball it's lizzie walking around kind of observing just what's going on and we while we're following her we're checking in with each of the individual family members to see what they're all doing 
And um, so it's, you know, first, you know, there's Mary is playing the piano and she sounds really bad and Mr. Bennett stops her and we see um, Jane and Mr. Bingley walking around and we see kind of the status of their relationship right now where Mr. Bingley's like kind of a lovesick puppy just following her around and she's like, you know, she likes it, but she's she's not the kind of personality that's very expressive. So she looks a little bit more distant and there's that really sweet shot where he's fingering her ribbon. Like he just wants to be close to her. He just wants to touch her, but he can't do it in a socially acceptable way. So he's touching her ribbon. It's so sweet. Um, We check back in with Mary and Mr. Bennett a little later on where now Mary is crying and Mr. Bennett is comforting her. And that's very sweet. Um, You know, we see Mrs. Bennett and her kind of, and Lydia and Kitty, and they're all kind of tipsy and ridiculous and, yeah, and but it it establishes, I mean, A, the fact that they are actually filming in this beautiful house and you actually have all of these actors who are choreographed perfectly and you get this sense of like, this is a real space, this is a real party, people are have, have their own individual lives and storylines going on in the sides and so as we walk past them, we momentarily check in on them, but then we walk away and their stories are continuing to happen in the background and it yeah, it's just, it's so good. It's so good. I can't even imagine how many takes that took because, it just, I mean, maybe they rehearsed it so much that, and they were agonizing over it that it didn't take as many takes as one might think. But I can, I can only imagine if they only did it in a few takes, how much prep that would have required because it's like you're not only checking in with one character once. It's like, no, you see them over here. And then 45 seconds later, you see them over here doing a totally different thing. So how did they get from their one mark to the other mark without being in a shot where the camera is there? Like, it's just, and now they're holding a different prop or they're, it's just, it's, it's crazy. I think it's, it's very, very, very impressive. Very impressive. Yeah. Um, and speaking of things being well-made, there was another thing in this whole scene of, or, this sequence of them in this ball that I um I actually just pick up picked up on this time watching it and I just thought wow that's actually such a clever such a clever decision which was there's the scene where Mr. Collins asks Lizzie to dance and so they do this dance and Mr. Collins is clearly trying to talk to Lizzie but thank god the choreography of this dance like does not put them in any sort of place where they're able to have a long sort of conversation and so he eventually like stops and pulls her into the middle and is like I just want to let you know that I'm going to be staying close to you throughout the evening whether you like it or not and she's like (laughs) okay but then I love how after that sequence there comes the sequence where she dances with Mr. Darcy where it is the complete opposite it's like the choreography of this dance is specifically such a type of choreography where they can talk the entirety of the dance there isn't there really isn't any sort of break that is long and so it's like she doesn't also have jane trying to give like hold a parallel conversation with her at the same time i mean it's just i mean yes yes but i feel like but i feel like regardless of that the choreography of the dances is different for like specifically for that reason and it's like even if she even if she doesn't want to talk to him she has to because 
because and you know and then and then there's you know the very famous cut to when they're dancing and everyone else has disappeared but I just noticed I just noticed on this rewatch the very like I said I think clever juxtaposition of having that one dance where the choreography makes it such that she can't have any sort of conversation and then jumping to this other dance where it's like you have no choice but to have a conversation and I just think that that's really really cool and very well thought out yeah it's incredible and it does like what I thought you were going to say earlier about Mr. Collins because this is something that I this a tiny tiny thing that I just noticed on rewatch is when Mr. Collins asks Lizzie to dance at the beginning of toward the beginning of the party um I noticed that Mr. Bennett is in the background and you can see him watching the two of them and you can tell that he knows there's something going on there and he's a little bit nervous that you know Mr. Collins wants to marry Lizzie and he doesn't want Lizzie to marry Mr. Collins cuz he's the worst but um, it's just this <laughs> tiny little thing that you get when you have this, you know, when you stage this scene this way where there are just so many extras everywhere. You know, this is a party and there are constantly people in the background and you can have this sort of unspoken little extra layer of a character who is interested in this, you know, involved somehow in this relationship in the background watching this happen. And you don't ever, it's not said, it's not acknowledged at all. But it then adds that extra layer later on when Lizzie turns down Mr. Collins and Mr. Bennett is like, yeah, I support that. <laughs> Don't marry him. I do not want you to marry him. You know, and you can tell that like he's been observing this whole relationship as it as it develops. And he's not going to interfere, but he is supportive of what Lizzie's decision is. Is that is that a line from the book when Mr. Bennett goes, your mother will never talk to you again if you marry Mr. Collins and I will never talk to you again if you do? I think it is. Um, I'm not 100% sure. I think it is. Okay. And just while we're talking about Mr. Collins, I feel like it's interesting out of all the characters in this movie, I feel like we're talking about Mr. Collins the most. Um, But I just want to throw this out there. I think that Mr. Collins and Mary would actually be a really good match. And I think it's interesting that we have that one shot where Mary is very clearly upset that Mr. Collins is like considering everyone else except her, even though she clearly has some sort of affection for him. Maybe she feels this connection of both of us feel awkward in society. And But anyway, I feel like Mr. Collins and Mary would be a good match. They might not uh, ever leave their house if they <laughs> if they were to get together. But um, I don't know. I feel like they would have a lot in common and that they could appreciate each other and each other's isms. Yeah. Well, there's... There's a lot of fan fiction out there that agrees with you, <laughs> I will say. Oh, really? Yeah, Mr. Collins oh, okay. is a pairing that people have talked about. It's like a, what if? You know, I think there's there's been like young adult novels written from the perspective of Mary. What? I don't know where she necessarily ends oh, my up gosh. with Mr. Collins. But I mean, there's just a wow. lot of fiction surrounding Pride and Prejudice in general. I so. I believe it. Yeah. yeah. I, um, I also wanted to throw out there, I guess, I mean... <laughs> We have to talk about this at some point because I think it is, in my opinion, the most relatable quote out of this entire movie, which I'm pretty sure you know what it is and I maybe not. But I remember when I was in Spain, so I was 27 when I was in Spain and I was going through a very tumultuous time in my life, as I think all of us are in our 20s and 30s and 40s and 50s and I don't even know. <laughs> maybe all of life is like that. Time. I hope that life won't always be like this, but who knows? Um, But anyway, I remember when I was in Spain and I was in just a bad place, I put this movie on just kind of as a comfort movie, like we said in the beginning. 
And it got to that quote from Charlotte where she goes, I'm 27 years old. I have no money and no prospects. I'm already a burden to my parents and I'm frightened. So don't judge me. (laughs) Like that is the most like, that is just so unbelievably relatable. And I just remember I, I just was waiting the entirety of my 20s until I turned 27 and I could actually say that quote. <laughs> and um, yeah, I think it's very relatable to pretty much anyone that is uh, 27 years old in this uh, current day and age. Yeah. But Charlotte really is a wonderful character. Um, I love her. Yeah. I would be friends with her. She's mm-hmm. cool. She's And so she's cool. also not ugly. I don't know why everyone's talking about how she's like not handsome. <laughs> she's so plain. Like, I know. She's, she's not. She's good. You know, she's, she's as they use the word handsome, she's a handsome woman. I mean, mm-hmm. come on, everybody. Stop being so mean about it. Yeah, absolutely. But it's so, you know, she's just this great example of this counterpoint to Lizzie and how Lizzie, you know, she's a very perceptive smart person but she is also can be a little bit blinded to you know this is the way I want to live my life this is the way I think I could not handle Mr. Collins and therefore no one could you know whereas from Charlotte's point of view you know I don't what comes around has no money and no prospects she's a burden to her parents (laughs) yeah like watching it again I was like yeah I think Charlotte makes the right choice like yeah it would not be great it's not ideal person to be married to um well I feel like society recognizes like there's no one in society that thinks well what's wrong with her why did she marry him like she's a weirdo I feel like everyone recognizes what's going on everyone's like you know what she doesn't like him but we respect her because of the decision that she made and it's fine so it it's not like she's taking on this shame of everyone being like, oh, what's wrong with you? Yeah, Everyone's everyone like, no, knows that Mr. Collins is it. like, financially, yeah. he is a good match. And yeah. with Charlotte, I just, I really admire this time around. She knows what she wants and needs out Absolutely. of marriage. And what she needs is financial security and a level of independence where she can run her own household. And she can't get that on her own. She needs to marry for it. She does not need a partner who's going to be like, you know, a great conversationalist at the end of the day. That's just not something that she needs. That's something that Lizzie needs. That's not something that Charlotte needs. And so Charlotte looks around and she finds the person who's going to provide what she needs. And, you know, she is fine with putting up with the rest. And I just I really admire that level of pragmatism, you know? Yeah. I wish I could... (laughs) be that I feel like I'm more so like Lizzie I'm like no I will not blah 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 blah. I don't like this person it doesn't matter what I need or whatever I yeah I really admire that decision that she makes because it takes a lot of courage and a lot of strength to um to do that so Mm -hmm. yeah absolutely I the the way that Lizzie and Mr. Darcy's relationship is kind of you know, it's it's paralleled against these other relationships. You know, their relationship looks very different with Charlotte and Mr. Collins and also looks very different from Jane and Mr. Bingley. And these are all to one degree or another successful. I mean, we don't know long term how they turn out. You know, maybe at one, maybe 20 years down the line, Charlotte is going to, you know, finally get really tired of Mr. Collins and be like, maybe that wasn't worth it after all. But for now, it's certainly I don't- not the case. 
I also don't think that Jane and Mr. Bingley are going to last very long, but that's just my own personal opinion. Oh, interesting. What do you think is going to happen to them long term? Well, I mean, obviously, this is a different time period, so it's not. Yeah, I mean, I feel like. But like, are they eventually going to get sick of each other, you think? Yeah, I think I think that after about six months, they're going to be like, um, this was a mistake. And then they're (laughs) both going to agree to like have an open relationship and be like, hey, you can have your mistress. I can have mine. And uh, we'll just play the formalities as if we're still together, but, but we're not. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> I just feel like they yeah. are on cloud nine of like just infatuation fairy tale land, and they have no understanding of like reality and what their relationship would actually play out as. Because when she really has to deal with his family, like it's going to be a problem. That's I don't true. know. I just, I don't think that they're going to have this thriving, happy relationship for a super long time. Maybe they'll reconcile in like 30 years, but yeah, it's going to be, it's going to be rough. Oh, <laughs> no, that makes me so sad. But I mean, that's just my opinion though. It is definitely not the sort of like deep meaning of meaning of minds that like Lizzie and yeah. Mr. Darcy are. Um, and it's also not, and it's also not what, charlotte and collins have which Mm -hmm. is like we understand what this is or at least charlotte does she's like i understand what this is but that's fine i know what i'm i know what i'm getting into this is just what i need so come hell or high water like i'm just gonna stay here because it gives me what i need and the security and blah 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 whereas jane and bingley i don't think that it's a meeting of minds and i also don't think that this is something where it's like oh i just need this so i'm gonna stay here no matter what because i need security i think it's like no I think that you just make me feel happy and you make me feel happy. And once we don't feel happy anymore, what do we have left? (laughs) (laughs) I think, I think for Jane's side, I don't think she's ever going to want to have anyone apart from Mr. Bingley. Mr. Bingley, I'm not quite as sure of because he is much more of a flaky character. Um, You know, he's, he's very impulsive. So I could definitely see, like, I think it will take a while but I could see a few years down the line him sort of flirting, starting to flirt with other women, starting to to maybe have, I don't know if he would have physical affairs, but a little bit of an emotional affair, sort of falling in love with other people. I don't know. This feels very disrespectful somehow to speculate about, but I can see where you're coming from. <laughs> I mean, again, like I have not read the books and I have zero relationship with Jane Austen, so respect to people who love her and love her stories I apologize if I have said anything to (laughs) you know I I feel like I don't want to be that person because I know that for me like I have books that are and stories that are very personal to me and so if people like for example with little women if people just think oh well Elizabeth or um Joe and (laughs) Joe and Friedrich it's just like this made-up thing and they don't actually I'm like okay how dare you? How dare you <laughs> attack this? Like, I'm upset because this is important to me. So I don't want to be that person to other people. So this is just my yeah. humble opinion. But if it is important to you, then that is fine. I respect your opinion. <laughs> well, to me, it's just that Jane and Mr. Bingley are kind of the most guileless, open-hearted, sweet people in the book. Or, sorry, in the well, book and movie. Like, they're both just complete sort of innocent open-hearted like they're nice to everyone they love everyone and everything you know there's no duplicity in that duplicity in either of them there's no like you know 
maliciousness whatsoever. And so it's just hard to picture them, like, what is their marriage going to look like in 20 years when, you know, presumably the, like, physical infatuation has worn off. Um, yeah, what is, what is it going to look like when they are left to their own devices, possibly, like, running out of money? And, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It's an interesting thing to speculate about. Again, I'm sure you could find some <laughs> much <laughs> I mean, we're kind of writing our own right now. We so. are. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so going back to Charlotte, there is something that I just wanted to say, which I don't know. I feel like because I feel like everything in this movie is so intentional that this must be an intentional choice. But it it's always felt kind of weird to me. The fact that when Charlotte and Mr. Collins, when they go to um, Lady Catherine de Bourgh's house, when they walk in, Charlotte has this weird bird wing flapping feather thing on her head (laughs) and I think it's really really silly and I feel like it it would make sense for Mr. Collins to wear something like that of just like I'm trying to dress nice but I don't know how to do it so it's ridiculous and everyone's laughing at me but I feel like Charlotte I feel like she's smart enough that she knows better like she's not a silly person so I don't know. I've always found it so odd that they chose to give her this weird headpiece with this very dramatically flapping feather on the top <laughs> of her head. Yeah, I don't know well, if you have any thoughts about that, but I always thought it was odd. Yeah, that's a really good point. I feel like, um, <clears throat> well, in general, the hair and the hats in this movie are pretty anachronistic. They're, they definitely made the choice to modernize them. Um or at least soften them from what they would be. Like people are not consistently wearing hats. There's a lot of hair that is down, which would not have happened at the time. And I think her her hat is not nearly as elaborate as something that you might find on a genuine Regency era hat, but that having feathers was a thing at that time a lot, those kind of big curling feathers. So to me, I think the way it reads is she is dressing up for her new station in life. And this is what, because this is, you, you said this is when they go to visit Lady Catherine, right? Yes. Yeah. So the, to me, this is Charlotte dressing do, up because she knows know? this is what Lady Catherine, I know, yeah, I can picture it. I just can, can you not make sure pi- oh, I was you can thinking picture of the, it. Okay. Like, the, the part yeah. of the movie that I was thinking of. Yeah. To me, this yeah. is uh, Charlotte dressing up be- this way because she knows this is what Lady Catherine would expect. Lady Catherine is the more formal character. She's the, um, you know, she's higher in society. And so, um kind of one way of visualizing that is clothes that are a little bit more fashion forward in the sense that they're maybe from a slightly later time period and they're also a little bit closer to what the high society would have worn at that time in the same way that like charlotte wears or um charlotte uh caroline bingley mr bingley's sister at the netherfield ball she's wearing a true empire waist um and the style of her dress is not sure about the sleevelessness but the 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 high high waist is more accurate to later in in a little bit like five or ten years later from when the movie is set and it shows that she is this kind of what it visually signifies is that she is this high society society character who is more fashion forward than a lot of the other characters around her because she's wearing clothes that have not yet quite come into style um but it does create this kind of visual distinction between her versus Lizzie and Jane and the other Bennets who are wearing the lower waists of the, um, 
late 1700s versus the higher wastes of the 18 aughts and 1810s. And, um, you know, and, and then that then creates that sort of, you know, rich versus poor element of, you know, more fashionable clothing versus a little bit less fashionable clothing. I totally get that. I just feel like it's a weird choice. I feel like she could have had feathers on her head. Like, that's fine. If 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 they're trying to make that statement of like, she's she's trying to dress up in society, let's give her feathers. That's fine. I just feel like the fact that that feather in particular is very violently <laughs> flapping up <laughs> that and feather down. in particular I feel just like, looks weird. Yeah, I feel like the wardrobe department would have been like, hey, Joe, you think we can take a minute to maybe pin that down because it's really it's really distracting in my opinion. It's always been distracting to me. So I feel like the fact that it's left to be like that is a conscious decision because otherwise they would have taken it out and they would have changed it. And so I'm like, yeah, I feel well, like there's some sort of in desire for it to be comical. And I feel like it just feels out of place to me. Well, couldn't it be also, you know, she's not only taking on the high society of, you know, living in a place where Lady Catherine is her patroness and she's visiting her regularly, but also taking on the sort of comical nature of being married to Mr. Collins, you know, like this is Mr. Collins' wife. So she's going to wear something that's a I little guess. bit more Colin, uh, comical. I guess, but but like I said before, I feel like Charlotte is, is too smart to do that. I don't feel like, I feel like she knows the importance of being in front of Catherine de Bourgh and she would not wear something like that so I don't know it just feels like a weird choice to me I, I'm not gonna die on this hill because it's a very minor detail but <laughs> yeah. it, it's something well, that has like, always bothered me yeah and I find it very distracting yeah well I feel like at, at the very least it does give us an opportunity to talk about the costuming which I think is wonderful it's by the costumes are by Jacqueline Durant and um they are not you know as I mentioned before the uh, when this film was being adapted, Joe Wright made the decision to push the time period back slightly. So the the book came out in 1813. The costumes are much more 1790s, um, kind of which is the basically the transitional period between the the clothing that the older women tend to be wearing, which is more the kind of tubular uh, stays, um, uh, you know, that kind of comes to a V at the waist. Versus the sort of natural, maybe slightly lifted waist that the younger characters are wearing. But it's not yet going to the Regency period, which is the very, very high waist right under the bodice or the right under the bust um, line that Caroline Bingley is wearing through a lot of the film. And um, yeah, and the, the costumes are not, you know, they, they're kind of more evoking the time period than being a strictly accurate <laughs> representation. Yeah, I feel like time. I feel like people back then didn't put beads in their hair the way that Lizzie did. I mean, I think it looks beautiful. It looks absolutely beautiful. But I feel like that wasn't something that was done back then. Maybe I'm wrong. Geneva clearly knows everything about the fashion of the 1800s. I know literally <laughs> nothing about it. But I feel like that particular... Uh, like updo that she has with those beads it it feels very modern to me um I think it's beautiful but it feels very modern yeah I don't know about um putting beads in the hair I would not I honestly would not be surprised because people did put a lot of crazy things in their hair that we don't really do anymore but yeah I don't know about that hairstyle specifically whether that's modern or whether that's more just like evoking to me it evokes very um kind of makes me think of like greek statuary which is 
accurate because like the regency period um you know moving into the regency period it was very they were very interested in bringing back kind of inspiration from classical greek and roman sculpture and this kind of long flowy lines um you know hair and these sort of elaborate updos so like it feels right even if it's not actually right you know which is to me good costuming like good historical period costuming um is that you know i love it when costuming gets super accurate and like i love reading people who are really experts on this getting into the nitty-gritty of why they did things right but i think you can and have good... geneva also geneva also <laughs> gets very upset when people do it wrong yes <laughs> <laughs> but you can have you can have really good costuming that works for the movie and creates a world and creates a sense of the time period but is not necessarily accurate on every single detail and i think that's what this costuming is and yeah it really works for the movie and i think it's beautiful yeah um so something else that i wrote down kind of going along just the themes of things that just feel kind of I don't know if I consider this to be odd. It's just something that I've never really understood. I feel like it's this this reoccurring shot that is supposed to have so much meaning, which is why they do these close-ups. But for me, it just feels very you didn't you didn't need to do that. That's a little bit on the nose. We know what's happening. But there's these reoccurring shots throughout the movie of Mr. Darcy's hand and I I I'm sorry. Oh I know a lot of people really like them because it's it's kind of telling this story of he's inviting her hand, but he has nothing, no hand to hold, and he's alone. But he what? Like <laughs> I understand what I understand what the movie is going for, but I feel like for me it's a bit much. It's like hitting me over the head with Darcy is alone and his hands are cold. And he needs someone to just come along this life journey with him and warm up his hands and be his partner. And I don't know. I just it's it just feels a bit too much for me. Wow. I could not disagree with you more. I respect <laughs> your opinion. I think most I think most people disagree with me. But. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I don't think that the particularly the, the first shot of the hand, which is just, you know, it's been put into gif form so many times and you know we Jane Austen the one of him helping too. her into the carriage because yes. mm-hmm. there the focus is not like his hand is cold the focus is I have never touched this person before and the feeling of this person's hand their skin on my fingers is just electric you know it's and it, it is you know it's uh it, it works so well for me because it's just like there is that just that tingle that rush you know when you touch a person for the first time and it's it's exciting and you know it's ah oh, it just works so <laughs> it works so well <laughs> I love hearing you talk about it and I do I do want to be clear cuz I feel like I don't know I feel like I'm trying to with a lot of this conversation I feel like I'm trying to play devil's advocate a little mm-hmm. bit because Geneva clearly this is if it's not clear <laughs> this is very much so Geneva's kind of area of expertise she loves she loves British things she loves particularly this time period she loves romance she loves like this movie is is like her jam right it really is I make no claims to expertise but I do love (laughs) compared to me you are way more of an expert than I am whereas for me it's like 
it's, I don't, I don't necessarily like have that same strong personal connection to Mm -hmm. the story. So I really love the movie in terms of like the, like I said before, the, the locations, the costume design, the acting, the film, the cinematography, the writing, I do genuinely love this movie. Um, but I feel like for, for whatever reason that I can't even (laughs) fully identify for whatever reason I've taken on this role of, I'm just going to say things that I complain about, blah, which is in all honesty that we love in all honesty, it's very minimal. Like there aren't many things about this movie that I dislike (laughs) that I do. And even the things that I said, I don't dislike them. I just find them to be odd decisions that are very glaring to me. Um, but I just want to yeah. be clear. I do love this movie. <laughs> I think it's yeah. very well made. Well, actually, I'm glad you brought have, that up because I it, don't have the same level of praise because yeah. I don't have the the same level of like just connection to everything else about the storyline and the books and the author and the time period and the mm-hmm. like everything else about it. I don't have any yeah. connection to. So, okay. So another thing I love about this movie is just. I mean, we talked about a little. A little bit earlier about the locations, the fact that it was all shoot on, shot on location, and just the romanticism of this movie in terms of how connected to nature it is. Uh, I mean, one of the adaptational choices that Joe Wright also made or um, was this decision to make the Bennetts a little bit more impoverished and a little bit more rural than they strictly would be in the book. Um, they are not it's not, you know, it's not strictly accurate for them to be kind of, um, you know, the, the women to be walking around all the time with mud on their hem, apart from that one very specific period where it's important to the plot that Lizzie has mud on her hem, but, you know, to have pigs walking through the house all the time, to have the house be so shabby and in such disarray, but it's a choice he made for the story, which establishes the urgency of um you know why all these girls need to get married because they're basically slowly declining into poverty um but it also just contributes to the gorgeous aesthetics of this movie and how connected lizzie and the rest of her family are to nature you know they're they're this farming family and she has this yeah this connection to nature and nature such a plays such a huge part of the movie you know you have the weather sometimes um, reflecting on the characters' moods, you know, the emotional intensity of the proposal scene is mirrored by the fact that it's raining and storming outside and everything like that. So, yeah, do you have any thoughts on just the the frequent use of nature in this movie and, and how many scenes are set outdoors and things like that? Um, I mean, I've honestly n- never really thought about it beyond the fact that all of the shots in nature are just I think undebatably just stunning and and very well chosen in terms of how they're used and what scenes they're used um but yeah I mean aside from that I don't really have any deeper thoughts I guess but I think it's a great use of nature for sure and kind of when we when we see her outside walking or because I feel like that's a huge part of her character. We have that moment when she's like, I'm very fond of walking. And Mr. Darcy is like, yes, yes, I know. And (laughs) I think that, yeah, I just think that it's really cool how they use that to develop her character. And I don't think it's a coincidence that the, both of the proposals are outdoors, which is kind of like Lizzie's safe place and her, um, where she really feels like she can just go and breathe and get away from her family and like 
be in her happy, safe place, you know? So I don't think it's a coincidence that both of the proposals are Mr. Darcy, like, entering into that space and recognizing that that is significant for her. That's um, a really good point, and I never thought about that, because it then contrasts with Mr. Collins' proposal, which is indoors at the breakfast table. Yeah, interesting. When he's declaring, quote, the violence of his affections. <laughs> Like, wow, I don't think uh, your affections are very violent, but that's okay. <laughs> Before and he now gets there's run nothing left for me feelings. to do but to declare in the most animated terms the violence of my affections. <laughs> <laughs> Now, before I get run away with my feelings, yeah, like, oh, yeah, I'm really sensing your feelings here. Uh-huh. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. We actually, I feel like we have not really talked that much about Lizzie and Darcy. Like, we've talked a lot about Charlotte. We talked a lot about Mr. Collins, but we've not really talked that much about <laughs> Lizzie and Darcy yet. So, who are Lizzie and Darcy? Who are they? I never heard of them. But yeah, I just never heard of them. They're so good. Like, Kira Knightley and Matthew McFadden, their performances in this movie are so fantastic. Um, Kira Knightley brings this. She, you know, she was very young when she shot this movie, but it's correct for Elizabeth's age. Elizabeth is supposed to be 20. I, I'm pretty sure that Kira Knightley was 20, maybe 19 or 20 when she shot this film. Um, and she really does bring this sort of loose, kind of tomboyish playful energy to her, which is very different from Jennifer Ely's performance as Lizzie in the 95 miniseries, but is, yeah, is just so right for this movie. Um, Keira Knightley got an Oscar nomination for this film, which I think is, I think is deserved. Um, I think she's wonderful. Um, Matthew McFadden is, you know, he- Sorry, I just looked it up because I remembered we actually never got the answer to this at the beginning of the episode. Matthew McFadden is 11 years older than her. So being 11 years old at my time, at my age when I saw this, seeing a 20-year-old woman versus like a 31-year-old man, he's going to seem a lot older to me. Yeah. So anyway, That's funny because it literally never occurred to me watching it that there was a significant age gap between them. Like I really think they read on screen – like uh, Mr. Darcy, I, th- I think is supposed to be a few years older than than Lizzie. I don't think he's supposed to be that much older, but um, I think they really just they're really well matched visually on screen. Um, I love the choice again with the sort of softening and kind of making the characters a little bit more like under em- you know allowing the character to the audience to have a lot of empathy for the characters presenting Mr. Darcy not as someone who is proud and reserved because of his social status, but because he's also very socially awkward and he is just really shy and doesn't know how to talk to people, you know? I do not have the talent of conversing with people that I've never met before. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's so good. And the way he gets tongue-tied when he's around Lizzie and he's trying to say something he doesn't know what to say. It's so endearing. Um, and of course, their chemistry. Geneva, I think this, Geneva, I think that this movie just like, I mean, I feel like we already knew this, but I think this movie just really shows how the things that you find romantic are so drastically <laughs> di- different from the, I mean, like, I, yeah. I can objectively, I can objectively see that it's romantic 100%. Like, this movie is romantic and it does give me the feels sometimes. Yeah. But at the same time, I'm like, if someone were to interact with me like this in real life, I would kind of just be like, what? Just talk to me. Like, what? <laughs> what's wrong with you? 
Yeah, well, it's like I relate to Mr. Darcy, and so I find it very endearing. But I'm also I probably need an Elizabeth yeah. who'll be who's willing to be like, no, you're being stupid. Just tell me what you feel. Like. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, they're oh my goodness, their chemistry in that first proposal scene when they're both soaked in the rain and their faces are so close, and you're like <laughs> kiss, just kiss. <laughs> oh gosh yeah yeah how do you how do you feel about that proposal scene does it affect you as much as it affects me the the first one you know where she rejects him and he's like you're yeah are you laughing at me are you rejecting me (laughs) i actually find the first proposal scene to be a lot more um it, it it gets me more than the second one does if that makes sense because i feel like it's so the emotions i think are it's so like yeah i feel like it's very almost carnal and like 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 there's a I mean like he says against my better judgment like it's basically something where it's just him being I that I love you so much that there is absolutely nothing that I can like I can't hold it back any longer so here it is take it how like take it however you want and then after he says it it's kind of like he has this realization of I don't know if I'm ready to hear the response because I think he knows in that moment that the response is going to be no. But even though he knows that it's no, he can't stop himself from literally blurting (laughs) this out. (laughs) And um, so I think that just like when she finally does respond with no in a way that is very harsh, um, but I think justifiably harsh for sure. Mm -hmm. But I think with the information that she has at that point. Yeah, like with him being so open and vulnerable in a way that we haven't seen him like that in the whole movie prior to that moment. He's been very reserved. He's been very restrained. He's made it very clear. Like, I don't know how to converse with people. And but in that moment, it's like no holds barred. Just like, hey, and everything he says is wrong. Every single thing that he says is wrong. (laughs) (laughs) But I don't know. I just think. I really like that scene a lot because it feels very, um, I don't even know if I can define it. I guess it just going into, I guess, again, kind of the differences between your personality and my personality for me, I'm like, just be real, man. I don't need all of this (laughs) fluffy, you know, whatever. I mean, I, I just be real and tell me what you think. And honestly, like, let's fight about it. And then after we fight, be like, whoa, the sexual tension is crazy because we just had a fight. Like, <laughs> that's that's kind of like more my speed, I guess. Um, that makes me sound like I'm a masochist. I'm not. I'm <laughs> but um, <laughs> but I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. This is a very no long response here. to your question. But um, but I feel like I don't know. I do really like how just completely unrestrained that scene is it's like I am not going to try and be proper I'm not going to try and say this in the way that a gentleman would say it and I'm going and I'm not going to try and respond in the way that a lady would respond I feel like it's just them kind of going back to um Jane and Bingley a little bit I feel like Jane and Bingley one of the reasons why in my opinion I feel like they're not going to last is because I feel like they're not really being the full versions of themselves they're just being kind of these like we both like each other but we don't know what to say and so oh you like me back cool it's so sweet that you like me back but I feel like they're not at least from what we see in the movie maybe there's more going on but I feel like they're never really fully real with each other 
Whereas with Darcy and Lizzie in this scene, I feel like they are being 100% real with each other. And so the love feels real, which is why I connect with it. Um, so yeah, that was a very long answer to your question, but I do really like this scene. Maybe it affects me differently than you do. Cause I think we read it maybe in different lights. Um, but yes, I do find it to be very, um, Here's the difference. I feel like the the second proposal scene is very romantic. I feel like the first proposal scene is hot, if yes. that makes sense. Yes. No, I, I agree. Think that's I the 100% difference. agree. Yeah. Yeah. Like the second proposal scene is, it's like, it is the, what we've been waiting for. It is the culmination of these two coming together, but it's kind of coming on a long sense of like, these two belong to each other. And now we finally it's like it's peaceful the resolution you know? they're finally yeah. coming together and we've known they mean to be they need to be together for a long time but it's just like yes finally things are the way they're supposed to be whereas the first proposal scene it's like it's so wrong but it's so right you know <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh yeah the yeah, sparks I are mean, flying 100 yeah <laughs> the second proposal yep. scene is just this is so right you know <laughs> yeah uh-huh yeah you you said it not me but I agree yep. <laughs> I agree yep one of the other things that I wanted to talk about is just we don't need to go into them individually but just to shout out how many great supporting performances are in this movie because everyone is flawless as we already talked about before and we've you know we've already talked a bit about Tom Hollander as Mr. Collins who's wonderful and um Claudia Blakely I think her name when is when you say flawless Charlotte. you mean in terms of the casting or casting and performances for me like okay, I think they're gotcha. just perfect people being cast for these roles and then doing them excellently but I wanted to particularly shout out Rosamund Pike as Jane who mm. is so you know, she's so beautiful and she really projects this sort of sweetness and innocence throughout the film, you know, where she, you really believe it, that she is this woman who just cannot see anything that is bad, but also cannot really struggles to express her emotions, you know, and she's can be a lot more of herself when she's around Lizzie, but with anyone else, she's just kind of reverts to just, you know, being kind of generally sweet and pleasant to everyone. And so you understand why, like, an outsider list like Mr. Darcy would misunderstand and would think that she does not feel for um, Mr. Bingley. But then the proposal scene between the two of them, which I have to admit is like my second like emotional high point of the movie for me, for whatever reason, that shot, that beautiful shot of the two of them from the side where Mr. Bingley kneels down, it just always gets my heart. I'm just like, it. I just like, my heart jumps. Like, that I'm just is, so excited that is for so her. Interesting. Yeah, that is so interesting. Yeah. Because it's just, it's so low key, you know, compared to everything that Mr. Darcy and Lizzie are doing. You know, it's so low key, but it's so them. And then the cut to, um, we don't actually see the proposal, which I think is really interesting. We see the family listening outside, uh, which is such a As fun always, running classic throughout the movie. But then the cut to Jane saying yes and just absolutely breaking down and she's crying and she's laughing. And it's the most emotion that we've seen from her throughout the entire movie. But it's like this, we are finally seeing her feelings. You know, we are finally actually seeing her express herself. This is the first time that she feels that she can actually express the depth of her love for Mr. Bingley. And it's just, it's all coming out. And I just think it's so beautiful. And also um, Simon Woods, I think his name is, who plays Mr. Dars, who Mr. Bingley is just, he's such an adorable little doof. And I love it so much. 
he's like he has so many moments of like these little facial expressions where he's just like he doesn't quite understand what's going on or he's shocked at something but he kid doesn't know how to react or he's he's so adorable he's just so silly oh i love it so much and i feel like we can't we can't talk about all the supporting characters without having a mention of the goddess that is Judy Dench. Oh my goodness. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. Her performance as the Lady Catherine de Burgh is absolutely formidable. It's, it, I mm-hmm. just, I, I am terrified. <laughs> she is. You do I not want to cross her. No. Oh my gosh. And I, I genuinely wonder like, what is this? There could be a fun sequel to this movie. That's like a horror movie of Judy, of, of Lady (laughs) Catherine de Burgh coming to get Lizzie because she promised that she would never marry her nephew. (laughs) That's supposed to marry her daughter. And now it's like the two of them fighting against each other. Oh my goodness. Like she is absolutely terrifying which I think is such a perfect performance. And the way she sits and carries herself is so like pompous, but noble, but intimidating. Like, I just think that her performance is fantastic. So good. This is not to be born. Like it's, oh, it's so good. <laughs> yeah. It's so good. Yeah. Um, also, we mentioned her a little bit already, but Brenda Blethyn as Mrs. Bennett, who is just this somehow manages to make a character that can very, often be a very annoying character just so hot hot take i actually think that she gives the best performance in this whole movie oh interesting yeah i can see it i can see it because she's so yeah she's this character who could easily be very annoying but she manages to make her very endearing um and there is this kind of like at times there is this kind of warm motherly warmth to her that you can see like the the affection she has for her daughters then at the same time, at other times, she's just like, oh, clearly she, you know, she never really got over being like this beautiful teenager who would basically be the, like the Lydia, you know, be running around and flirting with everyone in sight. And even though she can't really do that anymore because she's a mother, she is clearly trying to live that out through her daughters. Um, yeah, I, I think she's really wonderful. Yeah. Um, oh, gosh, there was someone else that I wanted to shout out to. And now I'm, I'm blanking on who it was. Um, is there anyone else that you wanted to shout out? I don't think so. Um, I think we've talked quite a bit about, I don't know the actress's name, but the woman who plays Charlotte, um, I think that her performance is really good, but we've talked quite a bit about her. So yeah, I mean, um, Mr. Bennett, I think is great. I don't remember the name of that actor. I should yeah, because Donald I've seen Sutherland. him in several things. Yes. Um, I think his performance is really good. Mm-hmm. I like He's how we see actor. him kind of shed his layers in that last scene with Lizzie where she's telling him that she loves Darcy and all that stuff. I like seeing him peel back those layers and, and see kind of a, a softer, not even softer, but more paternal side of him. Because I feel like throughout the movie, he just kind of seems like a friend of his, like he's just a participant in the family. He's his daughter's friends and his wife's friend and da da da. But in that scene, he feels very much so like, like a father. Um, and I like that. So yeah, but I think that's it. I mean, I mean, all the supporting characters are good. Oh, like the guy, or the lady who plays Mr. Bingley's sister is great. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Oh, I, what I wanted to say before is, um, and he doesn't have a huge amount to do. Um, so I, I'm not necessarily saying like it's 
like super stand out. It doesn't super stand out to me in terms of the performance, but Rupert Friend is just, he's a wonderful actor in other things. Yeah. But also I find it so funny that he looks so much like Orlando Bloom to me. And I wonder if that was an intentional choice to have the sort of like superficial rival that Lizzie is initially interested in be someone who looks so much like Orlando Bloom two years after Pirates of the Caribbean. Can I just say something? I wrote this down because... Like, I knew it in my brain, but I had to write it all down in order to make sure that I verbalized it clearly in mm-hmm. the podcast. So when I saw this movie initially, I, you know, it was like when it first came out. So I think I was like 11 years old. And by that point, I was already obsessed with Lord of the Rings, obsessed with Pirates of the Caribbean. Like, these were the the forming movies of my preteen years slash childhood. And so... I wrote down like this is this was Tatum's cinematic universe at the time. <laughs> so so I I've kind of interchanged character names with actor names because I didn't do the research to kind of connect them all but so Kira Knightley and Mr. Collins were both in Pirates of the Caribbean. And then Mr. Wickham looks like Orlando Bloom. Orlando Bloom <laughs> was in Pirates of the Caribbean and he was in Lord of the Rings. <laughs> Billy Boyd, who plays Pippin in Lord of the Rings, was also in Master and Commander. <laughs> so these were like all of my favorite movies at oh, the time. Master and Commander, and so then good. Narnia, which came out just a few la- years later, has James McAvoy in it. And Narnia is kind of tied to it because it's also Fantasy Atonement. World, which I loved at the time. And then James McAvoy's in Narnia and then he's in Atonement. And I was like, oh my gosh, that's Mr. <laughs> Tumnus. Whoa. So this was like... Tatum's cinematic universe mm-hmm. as a preteen. I loved watching all of these movies and just realizing, oh my gosh, I know this person from that thing and this person from yeah. that thing and this guy looks like Orlando Bloom and I love Orlando Bloom and blah blah blah. Yeah. blah. It was it was a very exciting time for me yeah. <laughs> because it was well, like I mean, this- every movie that I was super super into had these relationships to the other movies that I was super super into. Yeah. Well, this kind of just goes into the fact that the UK acting pool is so small and they have about you know. 50 actors and they're all the same (laughs) things with each other which is just something that I love also can we shout out the I mean there's obviously the Joe Wright and Keira Knightley collaboration universe um because they were in this they did this together they did Atonement and then they did Anna Karenina um I like all of those movies um Pride and Prejudice is probably my favorite of the three but um they're all wonderful and but also um the Kira Knightley and Matthew McFadden um collaboration universe because they were in um Anna Karenina together Matthew McFadden actually plays her brother in that movie which is always weird but then they were also in and I will never get over this they were in this movie called Nutcracker in the Four Realms they are both in this oh, movie <laughs> is the father of the uh, protagonist, and she is the sugar plum fairy who turns out to be the villain. And yet, I don't think they share a single screen to get a uh, scene together. And I'm just, I want to talk to the casting director and ask them why you would do this. <laughs> why? <laughs> anyway, <clears throat> a little soapbox. You wanted to talk about the ending a little bit. Yeah, I just, it's kind of a short note, but. I feel like whenever I watch things now, I always have this thought of just like what it what it must have been like to be on that film set or with that film crew or whatever. And so that last proposal scene, 
I watched it and I'm so stressed out. <laughs> I'm like, everyone probably w- woke up super early to be there and they only have a limited amount of time where they have mm-hmm. the light that they need to get that specific shot mist. with the with the sun coming through and like all of those things. And I'm, I just watch it and I'm like, oh my gosh, that must have been the most stressful day of this entire shoot. Like, what if it's messed up? And then I was also thinking about like, Can you, I mean, I have so much respect for actors because acting is such a difficult job. So I was just thinking, can you imagine being Keira Knightley and Matthew McFadden and feeling like that stress of if we don't do this right, then we could miss the whole, because that lighting, they probably only had for like a half hour. I don't know. But, um, so having this sense of like, if we don't do this right, then like the whole day is like messed up or we have to schedule another day to do this, which costs the production company money. And so they have that stress. And yet when the director calls action, I read no stress on their faces at all. All I read is like peace and just resolution and love and calm. And I just find that to be super impressive. And so I watched that scene and even though it's supposed to be super calming, I'm always very stressed. (laughs) Um, but yeah, I just think it's a, I just think it's a testament to, um, how good the acting is. And also just like, it's just an accomplishment to, to get a shot like that with that limited window of time and have it look so beautiful. Um, so yeah, I just wanted to mention that, but yeah, that's, that's the last thing that I, that I got. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Well, um, there are many, many other things that I could rant about how much I love them, but we do have to wrap this up at a certain point. So um, this movie um, had a good critical response. It is currently sitting at 87% fresh on Rotten Tomatoes and on Metacritic. It's listed as at an 82. Um, as I mentioned before, it was nominated for Best Actress for Keira Knightley. It was also nominated for Best Art Direction, Best Costume Design, and Best Original Score. I did want to shout out the score by Dario Marinelli, um, which is mm. so yes. beautiful. How did we not talk about that? I know. <laughs> oh my gosh, so good. Yeah, the score is just absolutely gorgeous. Um, yeah, it's amazing. Do you know I am a little... one original score that year. Because I, I, it must be really good if it beat. It was. This movie. Um, Maybe it was I looked Master it up because I was curious. I believe Maybe it was, was Brokeback Mountain that won this year. Oh, which I have no memory of that score at all. So. I've not actually seen Brokeback Mountain, so when I do finally see it, I'll have to pay attention to the score. But it is hard to believe that yeah. it could beat this score. I am a little salty that it was not nominated for Best Picture because, I mean, a just objectively speaking, it 100 percent should have been, um, especially considering how much this. You know, how well made it is at the time and then how much it has lingered in just influence in the public consciousness. But also looking at the nominees for that year, um, Brokeback Mountain, which by all accounts is a fantastic movie, was nominated. Um, but the winner that year was Crash, um, which I've not seen, but does not have the greatest <laughs> the reputation. The Crash. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think uh, Munich was also nominated. Good Night and Good Luck was also nominated. I, I think Master and Commander. Oh, no. Master and no, Commander was, was a different year. That was 2003. Yeah. Never mind. Yeah. 
Um, <clears throat> I'm getting confused because the other day after I finished watching The Return of the King, I went on a YouTube uh, sprawl where, or, or YouTube spree where I literally watched video clips of every single Oscar nomination and win that Return of the King got at the Oscars. And like it was constantly up against Master and Commander. Uh-huh. So for some reason, I just because of that, I have Master yeah. and Commander in my mind. But that's yeah. a very different year. So yes, different. Never mind. Great movie. Different year. Um, fantastic movie. Fantastic movie. Right. Okay. Maybe we'll do that. Also a really, someday. also a really great score. Very great score. Oh, I've not really. I rewatched that movie recently, oh, but I don't remember the score specifically. The score. I should go back. <gasps> yeah. I mean, yeah. it's so good. Master and Commander is also on my list to talk about at some point. So yeah, I would be so down for that. <clears throat> anyway, um, Joe Wright was not nominated for best director either, which, in my opinion, he should have been. He did win though a uh, the BAFTA for most promising newcomer. Um, so good for him. Um, in terms of critical reviews, sorry, as I mentioned, yeah, pretty well reviewed in general. Um, our good friend Roger Ebert gave it four stars. Um, he wrote, when Lizzie and Darcy finally accept each other in Pride and Prejudice, I felt an almost unreasonable happiness. Why was that? (laughs) I'm impervious to romance in most films, seeing it as a manifestation of box office requirements. Here, it is different, because Elizabeth and Darcy are good and decent people who would rather do the right thing than convenience themselves. Anyone who will sacrifice their own happiness for higher considerations deserves to be happy. When they realize that about each other's hearts, uh, realize that about each other, their hearts leap, and reader, so did mine. I thought was just just a very nice little phrasing. Um, Caroline Sita, who is a film writer that I really, really admire um, and follow um, Chicago-based film writer. She had a long-running column in the film blog, The AV Club, called When Romance Met Comedy. Um, Sadly, it's not still going, but one of the last few movies that she talked about in that column was this movie. And um, she had a couple things about it that she said that I really loved. First, she said, uh, specifically about the the hand scene, um, (laughs) She wrote, Joe Wright's sterling adaptation of Jane Austen's classic romance lives in the contrast between wide shots and close-ups, the former emphasizing the film's stately setting, while the latter highlights the private emotions hidden behind the Regency-era formality. And in just four much-diffed seconds, Wright demonstrates how a dash of visual intimacy can bring Austen's centuries-old source material to vivid, sexy life. So it's kind of saying what I was saying earlier, but much, much more um, eloquently. Anyway, uh, another thing that she said, which I thought was really, really well stated, was a big part of what makes Pride and Prejudice such a timeless story is the way it romanticizes the idea of second chances. Part of the fantasy is that Lizzie is able to persuade this rich, handsome man to let down his pride and embrace his inner Prince Charming. But it's equally in the fact that Lizzie gets a second chance after making a bit of an ass of herself as well. There's something incredibly romantic about how loyal Darcy remains to Lizzie, even as he gives her all the space she needs to figure out her own feelings. Especially in Wright's adaptation, which ups its heroine's own flaws, Lizzie and Darcy are two people who push each other to be better, which is the sort of mutual self-actualization that the rom-com genre often does best. So, yeah, I I thought that was a really, really good point, because that is something that I really love about, you know, this is a story archetype, the two people who spar and then fall in love, you know, that has been done, you know, throughout the history of human beings telling stories with each other. I mean, it's, you know, it's the template for Much Ado About Nothing. It's um, the template for so many modern rom-coms. But, you know, it 
it's it's done so well in Pride and Prejudice, and it really is this idea of these two characters that the the movie makes you fall in love with, and how they their relationship is a force of positivity in both their lives. You know, being by being together and by falling in love with each other, they're forced to confront their own flaws and change and become better human beings, which I think is, you know, what we should hope for in a lot of our relationships. So, yeah. Any thoughts on any of these um, these quotes? Um, I find that I very deeply connect with the Roger Ebert one um, because I think that this, at least in my opinion, I feel like Pride and Prejudice is very unique in the sense that like, I feel like kind of like you just said and and, um, kind of like Caroline Seed, I guess, said, I feel like in in rom-coms or just romance in general, when it's captured on film, a lot of times it does feel kind of like okay, we've seen this before. Is this being done in any sort of different way that makes this movie like deserving of existing? Two pretty people. And the only reason they're together is because they're pretty. Right. And, and I feel like I agree with Roger Ebert that this movie is different. Um, and that's why I think it's kind of why it's connected with a lot of people. It hasn't just connected with a small demographic of people who will enjoy rom-coms regardless it's it's reached beyond that to to everyone of all different ages and and um interests and all of that um and so yeah i i think i agree with what roger ebert says here um so yeah yeah all right all right finally let's talk about if this movie i think we can establish that this movie has moved us <laughs> to some degree or another <laughs> for me personally i mean we've already talked about both of these scenes but just to to reemphasize, it's the scene it's the first proposal scene which I'm not going to say that that was my sexual awakening but you know it uh, certainly helped <laughs> i right, cut that out <laughs> wait was it actually your sexual awakening that no. scene no. Oh, okay. I was like, wow, that's that's awesome. <laughs> I I was 13 by this point. It had already happened. <laughs> um <clears throat> yeah, so for me it was the scene, the first proposal scene, um, which as we've we've talked about, it was just it's very hot. It's very, you know, the chemistry is just off the charts. It made me feel things. Um, but then also the proposal scene between Bingley and Jane, like that really was, for whatever reason, the way it's staged and the way that they're um, longing for each other is kind of just this subtle subplot running throughout. And then when they finally get together and they're such good, sweet characters that you really want to see them get what makes them happy and so it just really made me happy and I always just got so excited when finally he's able to propose to her and yeah I love it so much those really really stick out to me so what about you yeah I mean obviously the proposal scene in the rain I feel like that's true for pretty much anyone who watches this movie but um yeah one scene that actually has really grown on me over time it's not really a scene it's kind of a sequence but it's when um, when Lizzie goes to Darcy's house with her aunt and uncle and there's this kind of this sequence of events where she sees Darcy with his sister. Oh, and we did not even talk like, about Georgiana. Just, yeah. Yeah. And they do like this spinning thing and then they catch each other's eye and then Lizzie runs out and then Darcy kind of chases after her. I really like how and then. I guess these are kind of different scenes that I'm kind of pushing together, but then there's kind of the following sequence where um, Lizzie and her aunt and uncle go over the next day to do fishing. And there's kind of this really sweet conversation where Lizzie and Darcy, like they're surrounded by other people, Mm -hmm. but you can definitely tell that the two of them are like 
having a moment and um and then Darcy kind of snaps out of it and is like oh wait do you want to go fishing yeah. <laughs> and so good. um and I really like kind of all of those sequences of the two of them interacting at his house because I feel like for me that's when that's kind of when you start to really sense that like oh this is something that's going to happen like the two of them they really do genuinely have interest in each other and a love for each other. And at this point, they don't even entirely know why yet, because they're, fe- at least for Lizzie, like her feelings are softening, but not really. There hasn't been kind of the thing to push it over the edge of like, oh, wow, I really love this guy. Um, but yeah, I kind of like seeing that little hint of like, it's not like they hate each other and then all of a sudden they love each other. You kind of see this gradual progression. And so. I like the just the subtle cuteness of that progression that happens yeah. in that sequence there. Yeah, that's a really good point because it it's also kind of melding of their you know throughout the film we've seen the two of them have this connection, um, you know whether it's antagonistic or not, but this is also them starting to integrate the rest of their context like their families you know into this relationship like pre- previously every time he's met her family it's been her immediate family are mostly like embarrassing and it's been kind of a disaster but her aunt and uncle are actually pretty cool you know he he can connect with them and georgiana is great you know lizzie is able to instantly connect with her and georgiana knows man she oh knows. she's oh she's shipping it so she hard totally oh yeah she knows <laughs> yeah the way she the way she looks at her brother which like like when he's look she I sees also... him look at lizzie and she gets this look on her face like I'm so excited about this. I've never seen my brother in love before. I'm really rooting for him. It's very cute. I also love that concept of of like 31-year-old Mr. Darcy talking to his 16-year-old sister about how much he likes this this woman that he's met. And I just, I think that that's really cute. Uh, Or maybe they never had that conversation. Maybe she's just picking up on it, but. Yeah, Yeah, I mean, you can just imagine him telling her about his travels and like constantly mentioning Lizzie but not saying he's into her but she starts to pick up on it and she's like wait a second totally yeah totally yeah yeah also I realized before we end um there was just this one filmmaking thing from earlier way earlier toward the beginning of the movie that I just picked up on and I thought it was really great and I just wanted to rave about for a second because this I think is the actual first moment that we see any sort of connection between Lizzie and Darcy So this is at the assembly ball, the ball that's like super crowded, you know, where everyone is there and they're dancing and then Bingley and Darcy and Caroline come in and everyone falls silent and like, you know, it's like, oh no, the the upper class have arrived. We all have to like act nice now. Um, but anyway, um, so toward the end of that scene, um, Lizzie and her family have been introduced to Mr. Bingley and Mr. Darcy, and they're all kind of standing in this circle and they're talking. And as they're talking, um, I think maybe Mrs. Bennett's going on about like, oh yeah, Jane, like, oh, she had this guy who was into her and he poetry, blah, 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 blah. And it's kind of embarrassing. As they're talking, the camera is at basically face level and it's spinning around. So it's, you know, it's going around There's the characters. There's a lot of those like yeah, spinning, these spinning shots, shots in this you know, movie. And, you know, it's cutting so you can see, like, who's talking and then it'll cut to another angle and it'll continue to spin. But then at a certain point, Lizzie has that line about how, 
you know, she's trying to cut off her mother and she talks about how, oh yeah, yeah, you know, nothing like poetry to drive love away. And then it cuts to this steady shot of Mr. Darcy and the camera stops spinning and he's looking directly at Lizzie and he says that thing about, oh, I thought poetry was the food of love. I thought poetry was the fruit of yeah. love, yeah. And then they have this back and forth where the camera is steady and it's from Lizzie's, what I found really interesting and I'm might be reading too much into this, but I don't think so because I imagine this is a directorial choice. The camera, when it is looking at Lizzie, it's from Mr. Darcy's point of view. And so it's higher because he's taller and it's looking down at her and that places her in the frame with all of these people around her. So he's kind of looking at her as this woman who's kind of in the midst of this society that he's just walked into, this kind of massive, confused, like all of these people who are just like overwhelming and there's just so many and there's chaos. But then there's this woman who's in the center of the frame and he's looking down at her and he's seeing her within the context of her community. Whereas when it's look, when Mr. Darcy's talking, it's from Lizzie's point of view and she's shorter. And so it's looking up. And so you see around him, like the heads of the people but um, he's taller than everyone else, and it's also looking up. And so the framing, there's heads at the bottom of the frame, but then where his face is, it's all this negative space around him. And so he's standing out from the crowd in this really interesting way. You know, he, he's this outsider who does not feel comfortable in, in all these, these people. And it's just it's this tiny little moment of, you know, di directorial choice that I had not picked up until this last viewing. But I was just like, that's so... That's just basic, good, like, filmmaking 101, but it's just, it's so well done. It's so subtle. I had not picked up on it before. You know, good job, Joe Wright. <laughs> you really were, like, just absolutely, you didn't have to do that much, but you did. You did it for us, and I appreciate it. Yeah, he he's a very, um, he's a very what's the word I'm looking for I feel like bombastic is what I want to say but I'm like I don't know if I actually yeah because it's not definition it's not flashy is. in the same way as like a Baz Luhrmann but it's definitely a like you know I'm gonna do everything I'm gonna move the camera I'm gonna you know remove people from the scene if I need to like I'm gonna have these long shots you know it's very oh, ma maximalist that's the word I was mm -hmm. looking for he I feel like Joe Wright is a very maximalist filmmaker yeah at least from the movies that I've seen that he's made it's very like let's take everything and put all of it to the upteenth degree and do it all to the max. And I feel like he does it in such a, and yet it somehow feels restrained. Cause like you were saying yeah. with Baz Luhrmann, no shame on Baz Luhrmann, but he's kind of like, this is over the top in a very unrestrained way. This is like, <laughs> just let everything loose and see what happens. Yeah. Whereas I feel like with Joe Wright, it feels very, very controlled. Yeah. And, well, so much um, of Baz Luhrmann's maximalism comes out of the use of editing. And so it has this very um, disorienting, you know, quick pace whereas joe wright his maximalism more comes in the form of camera movement and or lack thereof um and so it is a little bit more um not theatrical in the sense of being like dramatically over the top but theatrical in the sense of like these are characters who are in inhabiting the same space and all it's all kind of happening in one long moment rather than jumping from moment to moment um so I think the effect is a little bit more restrained and more kind of down to earth in a sense, even though it is these sort of, you know, very intentional kind of slightly flashier moves that are not necessarily used in all films. Yeah. All right. So <laughs> uh, we both shared 
now how this movie moved us. You you did share yours, right? Didn't cut yeah, you off yet. I did. Okay. <laughs> I just wanted to make sure. Okay. Yeah. All right, Tatum. Yeah, do you want to tell lost us in the trenches? But it's okay. okay. <laughs> Tatum, do you want to tell us what we're going to be covering next week? Yeah. Um. Next week, I have chosen for us to discuss one of my top films of all time. Um, a few weeks ago, we talked about RRR, uh, which is another one of my newly new additions to my list of top films of all time. Mulholland Drive has been on it for a while. Um, but yeah, movie came out in 2001, directed by the incredibly unique um, and yet master of his craft, David Lynch. Um, so yeah, I'm really excited to talk about it and specifically to hear Geneva's thoughts because I am very curious as to... Um, what what her thoughts will be so yeah uh join us next week for that discussion yeah all right thanks so much um till next week bye bye everybody thanks for listening if you want to get in touch with us you can email us at yourpickpod at gmail.com our theme song was composed by joel rushton and our podcast graphic was designed by kara shin If you like this show and want to hear more, please rate and subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. We're excited to have you on this journey with us. Till next time.